I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a rumbly afternoon in the mountains of Utah. Today's guest is software engineer and award-winning science fiction and fantasy author, Elliot de Bedard. Elliot has been published in magazines, e-zines, collections, and in long form by major publishers across a pro- prolific career. She has either been nominated for or outright won many of the big awards in genre publishing. Elliot and I attended a writing class together long ago before either of us was published, and it was a pleasure to catch up. We talked about conformity as a form of self-defense, about writing and rewriting, and how working with translators and being multilingual changed the way writers think about our stories. Enjoy my chat with the wonderful Elliot de Bodard. How's, how has the writing been going? Well, there was a long period during which I didn't write at all. And I've started again since, I think since January, it got to the point where I've started writing again. So obviously everything is now hopelessly late, right? Yeah. But but at least, you know, it's it no longer feels like I'm pulling teeth. It feels like I'm being happy with what I write. I'm getting excited about the things that I'm writing. So I'm taking that as a positive. And I wrote a completely unexpected novel that, you know, nobody was, I mean, normally most of the stuff I write is under contract and this was supposed to be a novella. It's like 75K. My agent was like, this is not a novella, Elliot, not by any stretch of the imagination. Give me your novel and we'll find something to do with it. So it's currently on submissions and I'm like, <laughs> well good great. luck yeah that's Thanks. Did, did you find during lockdown that you kind of struggled to be creative yeah i think um so i i got creative but i mostly like you know i taught myself how to make bread or i was like i'm gonna take myself to make cakes because that way you know the kids will be entertained and i will learn new things but yeah but coming back to the things i had been doing before felt difficult right what about you what happened during that time yeah, it was it was the same for me. I yeah, I've been working on um In the Shadow of Lightning, which is the next big epic fantasy that's going to be out from Tor next year, and I I I had was about halfway through it kind of right at the beginning of COVID and uh and I just it took so long. I'm normally one of those people that's kind of start to finish within 9 to 12 months. And yeah, I, think, I, re- I remember we talked about that once. Yeah, that you're a relatively fast writer, right? I mean, in yeah. terms of once you start, you go all the way to the finish and you don't stop, right? Right. And and this book, it took three big drafts over the course of about two years or so. And I've Oof. only just recently turned in the final, final draft. And uh, and it Oof. just, it was well, hard. Congratulations on the final draft. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's, it's good to get it out of the way. It's, yeah, I can imagine. You know, it's starting a new world because I've been doing, I've only been writing Powder Mage for the last nine years or whatever. Oh, so you, oh, I missed that you had completely changed. Oh, yeah. that's exciting. Is that going to be the same kind of like, um, kind of uh, alternate 
seven well power yeah, rage kind of thing or not um yeah i'm sticking with kind of a, an epic fantasy set with kind of like an 1800s vibe okay. so yeah so a flintlock fantasy still but different world all new everything oh well that that would be a, a like at least you know the powder mage universe is like you know it and there's ground rules and yeah you know the places and some of the people right even if they don't all come back whereas this is completely like totally brand new right yeah and it's it's daunting going into a new project like that what uh this so this book that you finished because i know that you've written both novels and novellas in existing worlds of yours is this new book is it existing world or a new world no existing world um it's um it's in the same universe as the no- I, it was supposed to be set in the, i mean it, it, originally the novella was contracted to be in the same universe so i was like i'm gonna write it in the same universe but then it sort of it kept growing um yeah. so so no i mean at least i didn't have to worry too much about i mean uh, well i say that but i i kind of moved to a completely different corner of the universe so practically speaking although i did keep like a few ground rules i mostly had to redo everything from scratch in terms yeah. of the history of the region the major players the kind of different rules of the society and everything so half i think about half the work right not not completely from scratch but also not not having that familiarity of like i know everything right or sufficient right. that i don't feel like you know i had i have a pile of research books and that's where <laughs> i rest my case right so no but it was it was actually super interesting it was um so I, I based that on the 19th century pirates in the South China Sea, and it's a really interesting time period. Yeah, there's lots of really cool things happening, um, and and it's really it's very different from the Atlantic seaboard, right? Because most of the images that we have of pirates had, you know, the Hollywood version of the Atlantic seaboard, right? Right. Um, and, and it was really different, and it was also really like I mean, there's there's hilarious bits where the Vietnamese government financed pirates in order to attack China because that way they would. A, be a thorn in China's side, and B, get money, right? Yeah. And China, meanwhile, could not afford a war with Vietnam. So whenever they found the the letters of Mark in the holds of the pirate from the Vietnamese government, they would go like, okay, nobody has seen these. They're going overboard. They're not being getting, they're not getting written in the report because we are not going to be the ones who like start a big war with China, our government can't afford. They're pirates. That's the story. We're sticking to it. They're just yeah. pirates. So it's, it's, yeah, it's just fascinatingly funny. Uh, I, I love finding little tidbits of history like that and, and then using them in books. It's so much fun. It, it is. I have not managed to use it in a book, so clearly I must write another book. But it was like, I'm like, oh my God, this is so fun. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Very cool. I, um, so yesterday I uh, actually picked up and read uh, Fireheart Tar- Tiger. Um, and that one, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. It's, oh, it's thank you. Of, yeah, it's, it was a little bit, I don't know if melancholy is the right word. It was a little bit sad in some ways, but also really, really quite fun. I liked the, I, I mean, I don't know if it's a spoiler to call it a twist, um, mm. necessarily. I liked that. I really, it just, it was a really, it was quick, fun read and I really enjoyed it. Um, oh, thanks. I'm glad. Uh, it's basically the thing I wrote prior to the, somewhat prior to the lockdown. So yeah. I mean, some of the melancholy has an obvious source. <laughs> right. I kind of, you know, I was actually trying to write a short story. And, well, and that <laughs> turned into a novella. There's a pattern, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> seems to be the case. Now that one was, am I correct in saying that was Vietnamese inspired? Yep. 
Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely inspired by the um, early pre-colonial Vietnam, so like slightly before, like when the French were still arriving, but not with armies yet. Yeah. So they were messing around with polit- with local politics, but not yet bringing guns and saying, "Hey, your country's ours now." Right. Right. That's that's a fascinating time period that I I really don't know much about um, in that part of the world. And uh, and it was really cool to read something that's inspired by that because you could feel the setup for kind of greater colonial conflict that you didn't really get into in the book, but like the setting was very mm. there. Yeah, no, for sure. That's yeah, that's something I. It's a time period that I really find fascinating. In a sort of to me, reading it is a bit like reading a tragedy in the sense that you kind of you know you know how it's going to end, right? Uh, yeah. So seeing all the main characters going like, well, we are going to fight against the French encroachment is like watching a slow train wreck in progress and i was trying to um kind of get that kind of feel to it right the kind of okay um in, in many ways it's a kind of alternate history it's a kind of okay is there a way that this could have been averted this what feels when i'm reading it like an inevitable conclusion yeah. to all the ways that the cards are dealt right and the chips are on the table could there have been a way that this turned out otherwise and obviously, you know, it's fantasy, so we need a little magic. But um. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, now, you are, am I right, half Vietnamese, half French? Yeah. Now, do you speak Vietnamese? Uh, define speak. Uh, at the <laughs> level of a four-year-old, I speak pretty possible and pretty good Vietnamese. At the level of an adult, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you were born in the U.S., raised in France, correct? Yeah, I was born in the U.S., but I didn't live there for very long. Then I was raised in France. Then I lived in London for a while. Um, so that's been traveling. Yeah, yeah. You're very international. That's great. Um, what do you think? Do you think that your background has really informed your writing? I mean, I, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, right? Because, yeah. um, I mean, it's, it's always part... I think for any writer, right, the background influences what they're writing um, in specific ways that it has. I'm I'm really not the best placed person to actually point this out, but I guess you know the well first off that fascination with liminal spaces, the fascination with languages. Uh, you know, half of my Twitter when I'm writing is so. How do you translate this word into passable English exactly? Uh, and you know, going back and forth between English, French, Vietnamese, and sometimes Spanish when uh, there's a particular word. Uh, that is turns out to be the best in the language uh and so i guess that also makes me very i guess fascinated by uh by code switching and the way that we we were different we behave differently in different circumstances and among different sets of people right we're still the same person underneath but it's kind of a series of different costume makes it sound fake but you know kinds of different attitudes and roles that we're playing by that you know when i visit my family in vietnam the roles that I'm applying to my behavior are not at all the ones that I'm applying when I'm in France. And then even depending on, you know, if I'm with my family or at work, there's a whole set of different personas that you put on. Right. Uh, And I find that a little fascinating and I really like to explore that in writing. Mm -hmm. And, And obviously I think the biggest one is that I have a slight tendency. I mean, a slight, I default very easily to writing things that are set in the aftermath of civil wars or wars, right? And I am not that interested in the war itself, but I am interested in the consequences and especially the consequences on the next generation, which is exactly my position with regards to the Vietnamese-American war, right? I, yeah. 
don't, I mean, I wasn't alive for it, but I have grown up in what it did. Right. Right. So it's, um, and that kind of, you know, fascination with memory places, the way that the places can exist without really existing, right? How some places like the places of your childhood can be, can become almost like a story or a myth mm-hmm. or something that, you know, is foundational and very important, but actually only exists for a very small subset of people. So that's, that's kind of the kind of themes and tensions that I find myself returning to again and again. That's fascinating. I, I, the, the thing you said about kind of the, almost the costumes, you know, you cover yourself with, depending on the situation that you're in, we could probably talk for hours just about that. And when you're writing, how you have to kind of deal with that. Um, because like when I was reading, um, Fireheart Tiger, I actually get almost to the point of where it's almost a horror trope to me, uh, ultra formality like the really formal political settings and things like that, it genuinely scares me. And it's, it's okay. interesting how so much of the world, you know, has lived like that in ways that are very formal and very rigid and structured. And, hmm. and I, I'm, I'm always kind of blown away by that. I, I remember trying to watch um, uh, Downton Abbey. I tried to watch the oh, first yeah. season of Downton Abbey and it was so rigid and formal, everything that was going on, that it it really, it made me kind of sick to my stomach. Um, you know, kind of, you know, the whole structure of the servants and the, you know, the people in charge and all of that stuff. Mm. It's it's very fascinating. And it's, it's kind of cool to see that explored more. Within writing, is it mm. a layering thing? Is it something that you like to, to layer on into the narrative and explore? Um, or does it come kind of naturally? I think on some level, I've always been fascinated with that kind of tension between the the formality of the society and then what the people living in that kind of setting have to actually do. Uh, mm-hmm. And the kind of, I mean, growing up as part of, you know, the Vietnamese French diaspora is a kind of very weird thing in the sense that... Um, and so far as I can tell, because, you know, I have quite a few friends who are from that background, we all seem to have had the same experience as children, which is that fitting in and following the rules and not making any waves were actually not optional mm-hmm. uh, because our parents were terrified that we would get kicked out. And then if we got kicked out of the country, we had no place. I mean, not that I can get kicked out. I'm a French citizen, but, you know, they would get kicked out. Anyway, but um, that if the French government decided to send them back, then there is no back because the back is a war-torn country. So there's this kind of very strong imperative, I think, that they all imprinted on all of us, which was conform, behave. The rules are here for a reason. The rule exists so that you can follow them. And if you follow the rule, you will be protected. And And then obviously I get to adulthood and I'm like, really? Uh, we kind of need to talk about that, right? But yeah. but as a child, right? Because because it was our parents telling this, telling us this. Well, it's normal, right? And because I knew other people who were doing this, right? It's it's a sort of it becomes a back. I would say background noise, but that diminishes it. It's just become the whole background structure against which I grew up, right? So I think part of what I'm doing as well in writing is kind of still chafing against it and interrogating it and going, okay, well. Do we really have to play by the rules? And what do the rules mean? Yeah. So it became kind of a survival mechanism, right? 
I I think uh, I think you know different people dealt with it in different ways, but um, it, certainly in in the experience of the people that I do know for, who are, who share that background with me, it seems to have been very strongly imprinted that you know above all, do not make waves because you don't want to get noticed. There's already enough reason to notice us. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that that's different today, or is that kind of ingrained in the community now? I think it's different today because because we are no longer, you know, first or second generation. And by the time that you get to third generation, they're really starting to feel like not only is it their home, right? Because French is France is my family's home, but the, yeah. it's been the home of many generations before them. Right. So there's a history and that in turn makes them feel a little more confident although unfortunately some of that is being questioned with you know the rise of politics becoming really polarized against uh, questions of who is really french and what does that mean and you know this france talks about français de souche which is french by root which is a code word for saying people who have quote unquote always been there obviously the always is a fiction right but um, right so i I kind of feel for a while it was getting better and now it feels like it's sliding back again towards what I remember growing up. But again, you know, what I remember, my experience of it as a seven-year-old child is obviously going to be very different from my experience as an adult, right? So I also can't really tell to what extent the age difference makes me see it differently, right? Yeah. Well, and when you're when you're a child, you everything is experienced through the lens of whatever your parents are thinking and worried about and what makes them nervous or excited or whatever. Yep. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Now you've done. Um you have written both uh, long form and short form, and you've done science fiction, you've done fantasy, you've done now your um, your Dominion of the Fallen series. I was fascinated because I was just reading about this and uh, I was fascinated because it's almost like an alternate future. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an alternate 19th century, right? It's um... a... Yeah. It's nominally set in the 50s, 60s in Paris, but it really is. I guess I went for a feel, right, rather than an actual rigorous alternate history. And the feel I was going for is the 19th century classics that I got to read a lot of uh, in Mm -hmm. French uh, classes. So Hugo, Zola, um, 
Dumas to some extent as well, even though that's a little earlier in the 19th century. And it's, yeah. um, I mean, it's a really fascinating time period, right? In terms oh, of, it is. Um, yeah. Huge changes, huge upheavals, um, a bunch of, I mean, great fodder for horror, actually, it turns out, um, surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that whole kind of sequence of time period, um, you know, Dumas especially, uh, very influential on me as well. You know, and I think that especially like, you can almost boil down to that being some of the biggest kind of conflict and change in kind of in Western society. Um, and it's, it's, it's amazing that it all kind of happened in this one place. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what's really fascinating for me is that, especially, you know, still living in the country where Duma wrote the books, right. Is yeah. how you can see um, a lot of the foundations of a modern society in France were laid down during the course of the 19th century, right? Obviously, you can, you know, the stuff I can pull up for further from, I can pull from further out, uh, and some stuff that's more recent. But there's a lot of, a lot of the stuff that we think of as foundational dates from there. And I mean, the na- nation state, right? Single mm-hmm. language, um, even Paris as we know it, right? Uh, Paris as we know it was mostly built by Haussmann, uh, and well. I say built, but, you know, that kind of went through a phase of demolition first. Um, yeah. And so part of what I got for Dominion of the Fallen was the, was those really beautiful um, pictures from around that time showing the works that had been done, right? And it's kind of a, a fascinating that you can recognize the place and not recognize the place, right? How it's become somewhat different uh, and how some places have completely changed, right? For instance, uh, Ile de la Cité, which today is uh, in the center of Paris and it's... Um, it's a series of very neatly aligned buildings, uh, but it used to be uh, a working class, a poor working class area, and it used to be a place that was packed with churches. So that is just one church, right? That's Notre Dame. Yeah. So I, I mean, I guess I'm just fascinated by the process of, you know, how change happens and then how people deal with change as well, mm-hmm. um, with a variety of reactions you know, some people embrace change, some people cannot think of it, some people want to use it to their own advantage, and so on and so forth, right? Well, and change creates much of the conflict kind of in our, in society, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think, yeah. Yeah, it's it's that kind of, that headbutting between those people you just said, the people that want to benefit, the people that want to, you know, fight against change, the people that want to, uh, you know, enact change selflessly, all of those people are going to, you know, run into each other. Um, well, I think from, yeah, I think from, a, I mean, obviously, you know, this is just a lens through which to work storytelling, to look at storytelling rather than an absolute rule, right? But insofar as I'm concerned, the lens through which I look at my own storytelling is, it's about change, right? Yeah. Not, I I mean, I'm feeling very ambivalent about conflict because I feel like sometimes I have to really stretch the definition of the world the word really far, like conflict against oneself, a sentence that never really worked for me, right? But but the idea that a story is about change or the lack of change and yeah. reactions to change or the lack of change for me works really well as a kind of framing device, right? Do you feel like you prefer, because you, you mentioned before that you're not that interested in, in like a civil war, but you're interested in what happens afterwards. Um do you do you feel like you're drawn towards um, more of the emotional conflict that comes about of change and things like that? Because personally, I kind of I, I find it easier to write 
with the framing of physical change with, you know, the big wars and things like that. Um, although I do feel like I'm changing a bit as I get older and, uh, um, but what do you think kind of draws you in? I think I'm most, yeah, no, I tend to be mostly interested in like people's emotional journeys, right. Rather than, yeah. uh, physical. And again, this is not a value judgment, right? It's, of course. we have, we all have things that we're drawn to as writers and that's one thing that happens to resonate particularly with me, which is like, you know, uh, people's emotional reaction to change people's relationships and how these are being affected. So I do like physical events, but I mostly see them of, as the lens through which people react to, if that makes sense. Right. So I'm more interested yeah. in the impact that it has on a particular set of characters relationships rather than say the outcome of the battle or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I am more drawn towards more, tight intimate settings with characters that have been that i've put a lot more space into right rather than have something that would be mainly plot driven where i wouldn't have a whole lot of space for the characters right i tend to think of that characters first and then plot as a sort of scaffolding because it must have something to serve as a scaffolding rather than the other way around and then world building is really essential to everything of course yeah well, and it's that it's knitting all of those things together that makes a good writer, right? Yeah. It's yeah. Um, because you're going to have to have all of it. You know, I, I feel like I've, I've always struggled with the emotional conflict. Um, and whether that's, you know, whether, you know, I was kind of an emotionally stunted person in my twenties, maybe, uh, that could be part of it. Uh, but, but it's, it's interesting. Like, as I, like I mentioned, as I'm getting older, I feel like I'm changing a little bit what I'm focusing <laughs> on. And, uh, you know, my next epic fantasy, I originally pitched it to my agent as uh, that I wanted to do a political thriller epic fantasy. And uh, she told me not to. (laughs) Uh, She asked me not to because I had already kind of made my, uh, you know, made my big break with kind of a a military epic fantasy. So I I, I kind of I pared it down from what I was planning, but but I still snuck a lot of that kind of stuff in there. And, and I find myself more and more fascinated by the changes and things. Um, I don't know if you've ever, are you a podcast listener? Not very much. No, I think it's, I mean, I just don't do very well with audio. So yeah, there's a podcast called the revolutions podcast. Um, and, and it is absolutely wonderful. And each season is a different revolution that the host kind of goes through and gives really kind of, uh, very, long uh detailed explanations about and uh and the the episode on the french revolution is absolutely fascinating i i had i i knew some of the stuff you know i had always liked the time period i knew a bit about more than a normal person i think um Mm. but i didn't know a lot of the nitty-gritty all the little details and 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 after listening to not just that one, but he also did like the Haitian Revolution and he, he moved through several different. And after listening to those, I felt like like that kind of large scale kind of political change was so fascinating as like a historical um, mm, background. Mm. Yeah. And it's just I, I'm I don't know. I'm it's something I think about a lot these days and I I'm trying mm. to try to kind of rein myself in so that you know my books don't end up being a bunch of boring politics yeah fair 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 yeah no i i mean 
I come from the point of view of having gone through the history of the French Revolution several times during my school years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, by the time I got to the end of my school years, it was like, I would like not to hear about the French Revolution ever again, <laughs> if at all possible, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, different school systems. <laughs> well, of, of course. I mean, yeah, I kind of I kind of felt that way about the American Revolution when I got done. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Napoleon, the French Revolution. Okay, No. Uh, yeah. Okay, post Napoleon, maybe I'm giving you a pass because of Count of Monte Cristo, but that's it, really, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Now you're you're an engineer, right? A software engineer? Uh, I'm an architect, but yeah. Oh, you're an architect. Okay, your um your your Wikipedia page says that you're a software engineer. Oh, okay, yeah, but I mean, my Wikipedia is probably a bit outdated. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, architecture, that's actually much. No, 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 sorry. Soft, no, software architect. It's like, a, oh. it's like an engineer, but like, you know, making things a little oh, okay. higher level. Oh, very interesting. So, so you seem to be very kind of data and statistics, kind of a, a driven person with those, um, with, with hard data and things like that. Do you think that kind of affects how you approach your creative work? I mean, it totally approaches my, cre- I mean, um, so, um, one thing you kind of work out very, I mean, one of the core, at least one of the core tenets for me in, in engineering is you can fix it very easily at the beginning of the project. By the end of the project, if you want to fix it, it's going to cost you a lot of money. Um, yeah. so my view of thing, fix, fixing things in a novel is anything that needs to be fixed somewhere near the beginning, please, of the process. Mm-hmm. Right. And then if it needs to be fixed near the end of the process, it's going to be a huge cost. So we're not talking monetary cost. Obviously, we're talking time of the author to fix it. Yeah. So the time to decide that your main character is going to change gender would be helpful near the beginning of the project, if at all possible. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying that everything has to be graven in stone regarding the book, but I do have the attitude of, well, if I can set as much of it. If I can get as much of the plot on the page and as much of the planning on the page as possible before starting, then it will save me a lot of having to relook through several drafts later on, which, um, you know, doing all of that actually doesn't take me less time than people who look through multiple drafts. I do want to say, right, we did compare <laughs> notes with a friend and came to the conclusion that we just spent the time differently, right? I spent about 50% of my time researching the characters, writing my outline, making sure that every scene was where I wanted it, and then writing the book in a relatively yeah. short time. Whereas they spent all all their time doing one draft, then the next draft, then the next draft. Uh, but at the end of it, we crossed the finishing line around the same time. Yeah. But it does mean that I end up being a kind of, you know, planner author who has an outline and a detailed list of scenes. And if the outline diverges, I'm going to redo the outline, right? Okay. Rather than just go into the wild marshes without a map. So you you like having that map through the yeah. entire process, though? I do, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. It, it may be a really... The only time when I don't have a map is when you hit the last quarter of the book, where generally it's, uh, you know... I do not know what will happen in the last quarter of the book because, you know, I will have to wrap everything up. And yeah. although I kind of, it's a sort of, they end up here at the very end of this, of my hand, right? And my other hand is like, this is where they are. And then in between them, things happen. Somehow the plot wraps up, right? <laughs> right. I, I always have that somehow in all my outlines. It's like somehow they save the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you- somehow is doing a lot of work here. Do you, uh, do you, do you try to work towards like, I, I like working towards moments of cool, 
where I know that that a very specific event will happen that I'm trying to get to, um, even if that event only is a couple of paragraphs. Do you like to work towards that, or or is it much kind of more open ended? Uh, no. So what I mean, I do use the the kind of I don't call them moments of core, but I call them the tentpole moments, right? Which are the yeah. the large beats of the story, and I do I do use them when I'm doing the outline, right? So when I was writing trying to think of something. Uh, so when I was writing House of Shattered Wings, there's one one of the ten poles is at one point, all the magical factions in the city get together and have a conclave, mm-hmm. right? And so, and it happens at around the third of the book, right? And so I knew, right, when I was outlining it, first third of the book is, okay, there's this big ten pole that says every house decides to get, every magical faction decides to get together for a, a conclave. And then, but when I'm, uh, so when I was outlining and then we're backwards, right? So, how do they get to the conclave? Because too many people have been dying in the city. Yeah. Okay. How do they find out that the people have been dying in the city? Because this and this and this happens. Okay. How does this and this and this happens? And so on until we get to the beginning or to, you know, the last bit that I had somewhere. Um, but when I'm writing, when I'm drafting, I'm just looking at the next scene. Yeah. I'm just, I'm opening the outline and I go like, okay, well, it says that scene. Okay. We're doing it. And I, I, I can't, I can't, I know that people can skip scenes. I don't know if you can do that. I can't. Yeah, I, I like, I much prefer to write linearly. Uh, okay, you write in order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can write because, you know, my books tend to have a lot of point of views, you know, three yeah, or yeah, four yeah. point of views. So I can, I can write one point of view linearly, but the moment the two point of views are coming together, I need to make sure everything's caught up. Hmm. Because I don't, yeah, I don't like having things go out of order, basically. Yeah, same. I'm a little worried that if things get out of order, then I won't be able to put the pieces back at the end. And then, you know, all that outlining will have gone to waste. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting how you kind of approach writing as, you know, the, the outlining as, a, and as, as almost an architectural problem. Hmm. Because, because you're totally right. You know, whenever, whenever I have something that needs to be changed, if it's past the first third, I'm going to be doing a lot of rewriting. And I, I tend to, I, I got, I, I've avoided writing groups for most of my career. I got into a writing group in the last year or two, okay. but I still find myself frustrated by, I don't like submitting to writing groups when I only have some of my book written. Oh, okay. Do you have people read your drafts then? Yeah. I, well, I, I prefer to be finished all the way with the first yeah. draft. Um, yeah, same, because same. then there's kind of a, there's kind of a, a, a thing ready for them. There's a structure there. Um, mm. but if yeah, some other people in my writing group, they just submit the chapters as they write them. Go, yeah. Mm. And, and that, I don't know if I could do that. I feel, I feel like I'd be ginseng myself, but also the, the thing I, re- I actually remember this because when I was writing book three of the, the Dominion of the Fallen series, right? The House of Sundering Flames. Uh, and I got towards the end and the end was like as cheerful and, you know, full of hair pulling as ever. Uh, and that's putting it mildly. Um, yeah. And and I remember that, you know, getting to the end felt like a real struggle. And I was drawing, making all those little drawings of like, this is the beach where they end up. Where are the threes of thorns? And how is the dragon going to get through the trees? And, you know, <laughs> the kind of like giant puzzle thing, right? Um, yeah. And wait, I think I've forgotten one character. Where are they? Damn it. I'm going to have to stab someone randomly. But anyway, so, and I remember I got to the end, right? And I thought the end really like 
it's so, I, I just wanted to get past the finishing line, right? So I just wrote this sentence. I said, okay, and now we have we had the end and they see change happening in the city and blah, blah, blah. And I typed the end. And yeah. and it's funny how the mere act of doing that, right? Even though I knew that the ending was rubbish, I would need to be completely rewritten, right? Mm-hmm. Even though it was a draft that was full of holes like a calendar, but that just, the fact that it was finished just gave it a different energy, right? Yeah. It had, it went from being something utterly intractable that I could not deal with to a finished thing that I could mm-hmm. take a look at and make a list of how it needed revising, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, it's all in my head, right? I mean, all that change were two lines, a sentence, and then the end. But but there's a kind of, I don't know, there's a kind of trick to it, right? It's almost a, a kind of magical alchemy of it's the draft, the completed yeah. draft. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, with the current book that uh, that's coming out next year, I I did the same exact thing. Where the first couple of drafts, I knew that the endings were not good, and so, but I I was having such a struggle, kind of piecing things together, that I just had to finish something, send yeah. it to my editor, and then take like a month and just think about it and reorder everything in my brain. And once I do that, I really once I have that break. I don't have a problem even rewriting most of the book. I don't have a problem doing that because I... Yeah, no, same, same, same. I ended up, you know, through in House of Sundering Flames, I ended up pulling out, and like, so it had four points of view, right? Yeah. And I ended up pulling out one of the plot lines and completely rewriting it from scratch. And like, kind of, the you know, the, the ultimate puzzle thing is like, so there's a hole in the middle of this book that's the entire plot line. It yeah. has to match with all the other ones that I didn't change. But it cannot remain like that, right? Yeah. And But I wouldn't have been able to do that on the uncomplete draft, right? It had to be completed first. Mm-hmm. Because then you can take a step back and look at the entirety of yeah, it. Yeah, I think you can look at it as a whole. And to me, I think there's a very particular energy to finishing, right? It's a sort of, even if I didn't stick the landing, a landing happened, right? Yeah. And so, therefore, it can be taken care of. Whereas a book that is unfinished just does not have a landing. And yeah. then I, I don't know what to do with that because I don't know where we're going. Right. Do you prefer to write shorter or longer books? You kind of, you've done the entire gambit. You've done all sorts of lengths, but is there one that you like? I really like the novella, actually. I think it's like a really nice, the novella. I mean, I said the novella, but in reality, what I mean is the 20K to 60K range, which also includes short novels, right? Yeah. But I really like that kind of range where the entire story can be held in my head. I mean, obviously, I still have an outline, right? Yeah. But I can, you know, I I, I don't have to refer to the outline to know what's happening Mm -hmm. uh, or to have like a tremendously good memory or whatever. And and there's still space to do things that I cannot do in a short story. There's space to explore the universe, to to dig a little more into the characters or, you know, space to do what I want to do. With, With a short story, I always feel like it's a kind of balancing act where conciseness is the prime value, right? Mm-hmm. World building has to be hinted at. If characters become too complex, they have to become the only thing in the story, essentially, right? I don't have time for I don't have space for clever world building or clever plot, right? It has yeah. to, like if something becomes too complex, it ends up taking over the entire thing. Yeah, and and you have to limit the number of characters you have and which is something I actually it's kind of a weird tangent of mine that that the number of characters in a book is 
it never reflects the number of of characters in reality. Um, does that bother you at all? Because even when I write these massive epic fantasy novels, especially when there's lots of political machinations and military things going on, in real life, that's thousands of different people. Yeah. And and you have to boil it down. Yeah, I just, I mean, I have seen reviews of Fireheart Tiger that complain about the fact that, you know, the court politics are unbelievable because there would be many factions and many characters. And I'm like, absolutely and totally right. Yeah. But also, I mean, if I wrote that kind of book, the readers would throw it across the room because they'd be like, we're confused. Who are all these people, right? Right. Uh, and it would be impossible to keep track of. So I think to some extent, there's a kind of compromise between, at the end of the day, it's a story, right? And mm -hmm. it aims to create the illusion of real life rather than mimic real life. And I think you make choices based on that, Yeah. right? Uh, and then you have, I mean, obviously some thought has to go in the choices in order not to be, you know, stupidly harmful or other things, right? But um, but there's a kind of, yeah, it's, it's really a magic trick, right? A kind of, for instance, people never talk in real life the way that they talk in books, right? Mm -hmm. There's lots more interruptions. There's a lot more, uh, ah, uh, um, what did I mean? There's pauses where they go, let me think about what I was saying. The conversation goes all over the place. You can't really do that in a novel because people will, or a short story, in fiction, right? Because people will get impatient. So I guess I think of all of that as a kind of series of choices that we make mm -hmm. in order for the reader to sort of be able to take in the story that we want to tell, right? Yeah. And I'm not saying, you know, all the compromises are necessarily, because like if you have, it can, for instance, give the impression that politics is just about a few people, right? Which then right. has harmful real life effects. So tricky line, I mean, it can be a tricky line to walk, right? But, yeah. but I think it's it's important to be aware that choices have to be made about, you know, how much actual real life is going to be injected in versus how can we get away with a sort of modeling slash approximation of it. Yeah, and it's 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 weird having to boil down reality into something that's, I don't know, palatable to the average person. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's 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 one of those things I think that you don't ever talk about in writing classes, um, but it's people that become professional authors tend to, I, I feel like it's something that you kind of all do instinctually, but nobody ever talks about it. And I was thinking about that lately and it, it kind of bothers me weirdly, you know, like, like I was saying, listening to those podcasts about these revolutions there's just so many people yeah. and, and you forget the names of them all. Yes. And it's, and it's, and yes. And this, it's big and messy. And in practice, you know, things are happening in like 15 different places and that's just your, your local region. Right. Yeah. I don't know. No, I can, I can see why it would bother you. I think I just, I kind of have made my peace with it in the sense of, okay, you know, art doesn't really mirror life. Right. It models it. Yeah, it's, I don't know, I, I, I think it's fun. It's it's weird. It's a little bit maddening, but I do think it's a lot of fun. Mm. And I think it's one of the, one of the kind of pleasures of writing is, is figuring out, it is, it's like a puzzle, like you were saying earlier, like a, an, an architectural puzzle of figuring out all of this stuff and, and how to make it, how to make it good to a reader on the other side. Mm. Do you, do you think a lot about your audience? Or do you just write what you like and what you want to write? Uh, mostly, I mostly write for myself. It's like a fundamentally very selfish act, right? Yeah. Uh, 
and then and then once I have actually written it, then I will think about how to best present it. Right when I was writing on the Red Station Drifting, which is one of the very first Vietnamese-based pieces that I wrote. Right, uh, the first draft was thirty-two k, and every single reader I showed it to was like, "We feel like you're playing by a set of rules we don't understand at all." And I was like, "Oh." Yeah, those are because the rules are those are the rules I was raised with, and they're completely instinctive to me. But actually, they don't make a whole lot of sense to you. And then there's a obviously in the wake of that comes the question of like you know how much should I explain? How much you know? Where's the line between making sure that everybody making sure that people understand, and then just doing free exposition and tourism for people, um, and risking you know. If an actual Vietnamese person takes up the book and goes like, I know this already. I know this already. This is really boring, right? Yeah. So I think it's, um, I mean, it's, again, the whole sort of interesting questions about where you draw lines, right? Um, and the final the final draft after I cleaned it and sort of tried to make everything stick together had gained about 7K words. And most of these words were explanations, not, you know, and putting things into context, not plot, right? Yeah. So I think, I mean, there's something that I've changed opinions on, I think, as I wrote more, right? I think when I was starting out, I would be very, okay, well, this has to make sense for everyone and I have to be very didactic. Uh, And then I was like, actually, this is science fiction and fantasy. And then people should be able to understand what is happening without so many explanations going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we're at the stage of like, well, I can insert Vietnamese words in this and then we'll deal with that afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, I guess that's mostly where I'm at. But um, Yeah. Have your, have any of your works been uh, translated into Vietnamese? They have, yeah. Uh, just one thing has been translated into Vietnamese. And then, you know, uh, when I was translated into French, my grandmother uttered those utterly terrible and terrifying words, which were, oh, I picked up a copy of your book. I'm looking forward to reading it. At which point I went like, nah! <laughs> <laughs> so, um, never heard back. So going to assume we're fine. Um <laughs> Right, so I, I mean, both being translated into Vietnamese and Chinese, actually, because Chinese, well, obviously not being Vietnamese, but has is closer to mm-hmm. Vietnamese in terms of language and yeah. culture, right? I mean, they're not the same family of language and not quite the same culture, but, you know, the distance is slightly less than between, say, English right. and Chinese. So when I was trying to translate things, and also in Vietnamese, right, sometimes I would just go like, okay, forget the English, that's the Vietnamese. Can you do anything with that, right? Um, Especially with the Vietnamese translator, it worked really fine. They were like, oh, yes, I can do something with that. But so it's, um, but I don't, you know, my Vietnamese is not good enough for me to really have the full effect of what that means. Um, I I was translated into French, and that's a really, I mean, I freaked out my translator, who's a very kind man, who was, was like, wait, uh, nobody's been in a position to actually complain about my translation before, because you need to be perfectly bilingual in order to do that. Please yeah. don't do this to me. The author's going to complain. And the author was like, no, the author's fine. Um, <laughs> but 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 it was kind of funny because uh, there's a lot of... Uh, so when House of Shattered Wings were translated into French... Um, I got to, um, my translator asked me for a list of who was addressing whom with tu and vous, right? With the formal versus the informal pronoun. Yeah. And so I had to sit down and go like, 
I didn't think this through when I was writing it in English, but actually, okay, let's let's do the thing. So I sort of started from a series of rules of like, okay, within the same magical faction, everybody's using like, you know, the informal, mm-hmm. uh, except if you're addressing your head of magical faction, because obviously a little respect is due. Uh, and so, and and that ends up being a big Easter egg in the French version because there's one character who's like comes from another magical faction and then you know basically like joins another one in the course of the book. And she always thinks that the head of her former magical faction has no idea who she is. And mm-hmm. if you pay attention in French, the friend, the head of the magical faction, her former one, is always addressing her with the informal. So when it turns out that. Spoilers, no, he has not forgotten about her and he knows exactly where she is and he's actually intending to collect her. You're less surprised in French. Oh, that's it. Because that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've never run into, um, I've never had a translator ask me about formal versus informal. Um, and I, I hope I don't because I, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to have to go through all of that. Uh, but that's interesting. Uh, well, what my translator friend told me was like, it's great. I mean, usually we have to make it up. We will have authorial, like, you know, authorial word of like wisdom. And I'm like, authorial word of improvisation one evening before the answers is due is what you're going to get. But yes, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> did you read the French translation afterwards? I did. What What did you think? Of it wrong? was weird. Was it weird? Um. So, I mean... In France, right, the the translator is considered the co-author of the story, right? They get royalties and they get paid. So not only do they get paid in advance, but they also get paid royalties on the sale. Yeah. And I think it's kind of easy to see when I was reading it, because when I was reading it, I really felt as though someone had taken my plot, my characters, and the events in the book, and then had written a book. Yeah. Right? And I'm like, I know I gave the words. Like the actual words that were used for this translation, but it really feels like somebody else is speaking over something that I wrote. Yeah. So it was a really interesting feeling, right? Right. So right. It, it was, yeah, no, it was, it was weird. And also, I mean, I'm glad I had the experience, right? It's really, it's really fun. And it's really like, it really made me think a lot about what we mean by, what we mean by translation. And obviously, you know, I mean, I'm in the position of, being able to appreciate it. I mean, because in Spanish, I can read the translation, mm-hmm. but my Spanish is not good enough to have that effect. But because French is my native language, I can see that happening in French and I can't see it in other languages. So, but yeah, no, it was, it was great though. Yeah. Um, and obviously my translator was like, oh, I have you on, on hand. Here's a list of 40 questions related to the book. And I'm like, well, <laughs> how would you translate this? And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, I mean, if you ask me to come up with something, I will. I have opinions, but uh, I really don't know, right? Uh-huh. So it's also a whole set of, I don't know, language-based preoccupations, right? Which are not obviously very obvious when you're the author. And I know a yeah. friend of mine who was translated, I think, from English to French, basically said he he did his own translation and he ended up rewriting the entire book because he was never happy with the the sort of you know, starting from English, going to French kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, aside from not being a tr- professional translator and not having the time, they did offer me to do the translation. I was like, I'm kind of worried that I'm going to rewrite an entire, an entire book in French if that's, you know, what you're going for. Right. Um, so. Oh, that's that's interesting. I, I don't know. I've, I don't, I, I mean, I've had, I, I've been fortunate enough to sell a lot of translations, but I, I d- haven't really thought about how much 
a translation can really change how the book feels. And that's... Yeah, there's... We've had a really... Like, for instance, uh, so Zelazny, The Lord of Light, was translated into French in, I think, the 50s or the 60s. And I've, I first read it in that translation. And the translation is rubbish. And I hated the book, uh-huh. right? And then I, I read the same book in English. And I was like, it has nothing to do with the book that I read, right? Yeah. So, and that's, you know, that's the one I remember because, because I was 15, right? I don't, I think there are better examples out there of yeah. where that happened, but it's just, I don't know. Do you, do you, do you get questions from your translators or do you just mostly leave them? O- only occasionally. Um, okay. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll sell the foreign rights and then nobody will say anything to me. And then like five years later, I suddenly see, you know, a different version of one of my books. <laughs> Um, okay. on social media, like they won't even send me a copy. Um, but, uh, some of my, some of my foreign publishers are really good about mm. being in touch. And my, my Polish translators have always been really good about asking questions and getting things right. Um, and kind of <laughs> keeping me involved. Uh, but yeah. that's, that's my biggest foreign market is Poland. Oh, biggest. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. I know because I chatted with I cannot I cannot remember which person I was chatting with, yeah. uh, but they were telling me that it's also a question of uh, some publishing houses actively discourage the translators from contacting the authors. I I didn't um, know that. Yeah, because I don't know. I feel maybe they feel that the author has better things to do than just worry about their translation or something. I don't know, but. Um, I do know one person who contacted me and said, is it okay? Because I'm not sure that my publishing house is okay with it. Yeah. And so they went through the contact form on my website. And I'm like, I mean, sure, I can't promise you I'll have the answers to your very technical language questions, but I'll go ahead and ask them, right? Yeah. So I, I know that sometimes it's just, well, we're not going to allow you to contact the author because, because. <laughs> just- <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure there's good reasons on the part of the publisher, but I don't know what they are, right? Right, right, yeah. You never know with all of that, you know, everything, no. every, uh, lots of different countries just run businesses differently. And, yeah. and that can boil down to things being a little strange sometimes. Yeah, no, it's uh and it's uh and, it, and then you have a different, you know, local SFFC and different yeah. sets of unspoken roles. And so you, yeah, you just don't know. Right. So it's, uh, right. It, it's, it's, it's certainly interesting. It's very interesting. I, well, I, so I've kept you quite a long time, um, but I always like to end the podcast with a quick question about what is the last meal that just blew your mind that was amazing? What was the last thing you ate that was incredible? I mean, this is kind of cheating because of the pandemic, but um, so we reopened the restaurants about a month ago um, and we went with a couple of friends to Chinatown, and so we had a tea tasting with regional teas of Japan, which was like just full of like exciting teas I'd never heard about, including like the tea where we put fungus in and then brewed, uh-huh. so that it tastes like the forest after the rain, and it really does taste like the forest after the rain. So it's kind of like this very weird but very satisfying experience. And then after the tea tasting, we wandered out, and the the restaurants had put tables outside in the street. And so I sat down and I had my first pho in like, woo, a year, I think, <laughs> yeah. right? Followed by um, 
um, there's a kind of dessert that it looks a bit like mochi, right? Which is like translucent uh, um, coconut flecked uh, pastry mm-hmm. with some, I think it's soy cream inside. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I got one and then the second, I brought the second one home and I was like, this is like, this is like, it's not, you know, objectively speaking, probably, but judging just by quality of the food, probably not the best food I've ever had, right? Yeah. But just the, it's been a year since I set foot in a restaurant and it's been a, <laughs> like, pho is like really difficult to make at home decently, yeah. right? So it's been a year since I had this food. I miss <laughs> that so much. So yeah. yeah, I love, I love the feeling of just getting something, you know, I, I remember early on in the pandemic, we were kind of even worried about even just getting takeout yeah, because um, yeah. we, we weren't really sure yet how things spread and they, the science wasn't that great on it. And, uh, and so we spent probably four or five months just cooking at home. And, and when I finally, I don't even remember what the first thing is that we ordered, but the first thing that we ordered, it was probably some like crappy fast food but it tasted so good because I didn't make it. Exactly. It's yes. It's that I have not had that. Right. (laughs) That's so great. Well, Hey, thank you so much for coming on. It's uh, really fun to catch up with you. Uh, Hopefully someday we'll actually get to see each other again. Hopefully. Yes. I mean, I'm I'm hopeful that travel will at some point resume (laughs) in a somewhat normal ish fashion. Right. Fingers crossed. Yep. That was science fiction and fantasy author Aliette de Bedard. Thanks again to Aliette for coming on. You can find links to Aliette's social media, as well as her books and short stories, down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget to like and subscribe. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.